the metaphor of that last song, the invitation of God to His banquet feast, to His very home, to His family, should indeed leave us sort of marveling and wondering, why was I invited? There are actually around eight or nine stanzas to that song. We didn't sing them all today, but the song goes on to then ask the question, Oh Lord, who else would you invite to the feast? And may we who were invited go and invite others to faith in Jesus Christ. See, God's kindness not only leaves us wondering and marveling at His love to us, but then also compels us to be a people who are inviting the lost, inviting anyone and everyone to place their faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. Acts 10 is a passage that highlights this need. And as we dig into this text, I want to be clear about a couple things. The the fuller story is actually all of chapter 10. As Peter finishes his journey and interacts with Cornelius, where this is kind of all part of God's design in bringing these two together, we'll, we'll pause at verse 23 today and, Lord willing, finish the story next week as we think about God's invitation to Cornelius. The other thing we need to understand as we dive into this is a little bit of context, because at first it doesn't seem that surprising to us that Cornelius would have the chance to believe, and this vision with Peter and what it all means. So let's back up and remember the context of the early church. These were, by and large, Jewish Christians, people who were practicing Judaism, who believed that Jesus was indeed their Messiah and decided to trust in Him and follow Him. And it's likely in many cases that these Jewish Christians continued many of their Jewish rituals, their Jewish practices, going to the synagogue and worshiping God as they had before, now just also believing that Jesus was their Messiah. There wasn't a full and complete understanding of the gospel. This created some barriers to the gospel. Jesus was very clear. His salvation was for all people. Think back to passages like Matthew 28, 19 and 20, when when Jesus told his followers that they would go to all nations with this message. So we know this is what Jesus had in mind. But among Judaism, there had been become some barriers to the gospel. You see, before Christ came... God's sort of means of working in the world was through His people Israel. He had relationship with them. Salvation has always been by faith, but the way they related to God was through what was called the Mosaic Covenant, the laws and practices. That's how they, you know, they, they had to do a sacrifice so that through the priest then they could commune with God. This is how they related to God. And over time, this, instead of becoming a source of humility for all the ways that they broke the law, it actually became a source of pride. They saw themselves as more righteous than the other nations because they had this covenant with God and they kept the law. And maybe the Pharisees might begin to come to mind. This thinking that by keeping these righteous standards that we are then holy and better than everyone else. And so, rather than drawing the nations to a right relationship with God, 
Israel began to separate themselves from the nations in pride, in self-righteousness. And rather than the message of salvation going to all people, they became, became proud and judgmental, separating themselves from what are called in the New Testament Gentiles, which just means non-Jews, all people other than the Jews. It became so bad, in fact, that when their Messiah came, many of them did not even recognize Him and believe in Him. Jesus came to do what Israel had failed to do. Rather than being a light to the nations, drawing people to salvation in God's name, Jesus then became the one who fulfilled the law perfectly, having lived not only the outward standards of the law, but far more importantly, having lived the hearts of the law. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus did it perfectly, fulfilling that covenant and offering a new way to have relationship with God in Christ, who was God's perfect sacrifice, who was God's Messiah, who was God's Savior. And so now Jesus is the light of the world, and that all who trust in Him can be right with God. And yet, in this time of transition, Jesus had come, and Peter and the other disciples knew that Jesus was the Savior, and they believed that, there was still some question mark about these new believers. If people trusted in Christ, did they need to start adopting the Jewish rituals and practices which involved not eating with Gentiles, not even having them in your home because they were unclean, because they ate foods that were unclean and did not go through the purification rituals that the Jews held so highly in their own regard. So how was this new church to grow? And what were we to do with new believers? Were they to begin become Jews first, and then they could be right with God? And this text helps us understand That the way to be right with God is not by becoming a Jew, but by trusting in Jesus Christ. That no longer are we under the Mosaic Covenant because Jesus fulfilled the law. And now instead, we trust in Christ, receive God's righteousness in Christ, and then are ready to live for His glory, taking that message of salvation to all people. So that gives us some context as we understand exactly why this was a little bit of an issue for Peter and what the rub was here that this man named Cornelius was going to be brought the gospel. As we study this, we're going to see today that God indeed invites everyone to salvation in the gospel of Jesus Christ. God invites everyone to salvation through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're going to see as the text unfold how it is that God does that. I want you to notice something. This is not some great idea that Peter had. (laughs) This is not just Peter being a really good evangelist here. God directs this encounter completely. Every little detail, we see the sovereign hand of God arranging the interaction between Peter and these men sent from Cornelius. And next week, Lord willing, we'll see how even their interaction is guided by God's loving hand. 
ready to save Cornelius and to show to the church that salvation is in the name of Jesus Christ. So the first thing we see in verses 1 through 8, number 1 today, is that God invites outsiders to faith in the gospel. Now, I have that word outsiders in quotes because one of the things this passage does away with is this kind of perspective that some of us are insiders and then there are outsiders, right? The truth is, for all of us, if we were to make categories, we're all outsiders. But that's the bottom line, right? None of us is righteous in God's eyes. We're all outsiders. And so that's why it's in quotes. And you'll see in another point, I'll use the term insiders again, in quotes, because the whole point is it's not healthy to think in those terms. I was not worthy of the gospel. So God invites outsiders to faith in the gospel. In verse 1 of chapter 10, our attention is turned to a man named Cornelius, and we're told that he's in Caesarea. Caesarea has come up already. It's along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And if you remember, Philip has already traveled that way. He went through those coastal towns, including Joppa, on his way north to Caesarea. Caesarea is about 30 to 35 miles north of Joppa along the coast of the Mediterranean. There in Caesarea was a man named Cornelius, and we learn first that Cornelius was a centurion. That means he was in charge of 100 Roman soldiers, and that unit of 100 soldiers was part of a larger regiment, usually of about 600 soldiers, the Italian regiment, which was located there in Caesarea. Caesarea was a Roman provincial capital, and so there was a strong Roman presence and In connection with that, a strong Gentile presence, a non-Jew presence there in Caesarea. Now, these mentions already make Cornelius, from a Jewish perspective, about as distant an outsider as you could be. First, he wasn't a Jew. I mean, it's just very clear. Secondly, he was a Roman. And so Romans were the enemies. They were the oppressors of the Jewish people. Not only that, he was a Roman soldier. Not only that, he was a Roman officer. He's a man to be feared by most Jews. Very distant from anyone in Judaism. And yet in verse 2, we learn something interesting. He was a devout man. One who feared God, that word devout means that he was devoted to religion. And that could be used of any number of religions, but we learn that this is devotion to the true God. He feared God. And he'd even led his household to do so. This devotion to God was seen in his giving of alms and in his regular prayer. Prayed to God always, probably referring to the two Jewish times of prayer, nine o'clock in the morning and three o'clock in the afternoon. He was steady, he was consistent, always praying. Now, it's interesting, we learn later he never converted to Judaism. He'd only gotten as far as believing in the Jewish God and sort of picking up some of their religious practices because he feared God. So, in verse 3, we learn that there's a vision 
that comes to Cornelius from God. It's the ninth hour, which happens to be three in the afternoon. We're not told for sure, but a good guess would be that Cornelius was probably praying. And so he has a vision. An angel of God comes to him and says to him, Cornelius. I love that. God is reaching right out to Cornelius. This is for him. Right? And this is just a wonderful picture of the heart of God reaching into Cornelius' life. Cornelius, a message for you. Verse 4, Cornelius is obviously afraid. This is not normal. It's surprising. And uh, he's not sure what to do. And so he asks, what is it, Lord? The word Lord just being a sign of respect for this fearsome being in front of him. And the angel tells him that his prayers and his alms have come up as a memorial before God. So the giving of alms generously and his prayers, this word memorial sort of means a, a reminder or a tribute to God. God has seen you. And now God is taking action to help Cornelius take the necessary next step. This is a neat reminder to us. The angel goes on in verses 5 and 6. He gives instructions to Cornelius. He's to send men to Joppa, and they're to find Simon, whose surname is Peter, who's staying with Simon the Tanner. Very detailed instructions here. The house is by the sea. But notice the significance at the end of verse 6. He, Peter, will tell you what you must do. Two interesting things here. Number one, Cornelius has done well with the information he's received. He's heard of this God and believes he exists and seeks to do right. But that's not enough. He needs more. He needs more information to be able to take the next step, to hear the gospel and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. His good works aren't enough, and God intends to make sure Cornelius hears the gospel. It's also interesting that God uses Peter to do so. The angel's there giving him a message. Seems like a nice time for the angel to share the gospel, but no, God intends Peter to share the gospel with Cornelius. And that, I think, is also significant for us. God wants to use us in the spreading of the gospel. Those who have experienced his redemption to share it with others. Sure, the angel knows the message of the gospel, but he's not redeemed. Those who have experienced the message of salvation are the ones who then take it to others, as we see the Lord sending Peter to do here. So in verses 7 and 8, Cornelius follows the instructions right away. He sends his servants as well as a devoted soldier, so a group of three. And again, it's interesting that these servants and the soldier are mentioned as also being devout. Cornelius has had an influence on those in his household and those under his command. All of this reminds us that God's invitation to salvation is not just for Jews, it's for outsiders. And in the end, we recognize that we're all the outsiders. God brings the gospel to Cornelius. One of my favorite stories about outsiders has to do with King David in the Old Testament. You may remember the story of King David, that he had actually been anointed king, but had not yet taken the throne. Because King Saul, king at the time, would not relinquish his throne and instead even hunted David 
to kill him. For years, King David was on the run from King Saul, trying to put him down and put him to death. Well, after a series of events, Saul died, and it became time for King David to finally take the throne. And early in the book of 2 Samuel, we see some of King David's first actions as king. One of the first things King David does is he wants to track down who's left in the household of King Saul. And as the reader, we're beginning to think, oh, I know what he wants to do. Saul, having chased him all these years, he's going to just wipe out the line entirely and make sure no one can ever harm his rule on the throne of Israel. But David has something different in mind. You see, David had become friends with Saul's son, Jonathan, and Jonathan had a son named Mephibosheth. And we learn a little bit about Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth was not only the grandchild of David's enemy, but he really had nothing to offer King David. He was lame in both feet. He couldn't work for David. He couldn't add anything to the kingdom. And he was even part of the household of David's enemy. But David makes an interesting offer to Mephibosheth. He invites Mephibosheth to move into David's castle or wherever he lived in at the time and invites him to actually join him at the table for the rest of his life. It becomes a beautiful metaphor for the kindness of God that we, who were outsiders, had nothing to offer God, lame in the feet, so to speak, (laughs) friends of the enemy, And yet God shows kindness, and like we sang in that last song, invites us to His table forevermore by faith in Jesus Christ. This is what our God is like. He invites outsiders like you and I to become an insider, to eat at His table. Maybe you feel like you're an outsider today. Maybe in your interactions with, with Christians or The others who are religious, you've been insulted or looked down upon and feel like an outsider. And maybe even as you're here today, you feel embarrassed or unworthy and as if others are looking down on you. May I turn your attention to the warm invitation of God as we see in this text what He is really like. That the invitation to salvation is for all people. And I want you to know that all of us here are outsiders, unworthy of the love of God. And yet, by His kindness, we've been invited to trust in Jesus and to have our sins forgiven and to have a seat forevermore at His table. Would you trust in Him today? He wants you to. Not only is God one who invites the outsiders, this text reminds us as those who have believed and in some regard can be considered insiders, but not by our own doing, purely by God's grace. It reminds us that He has a task for us. First, it answers one question. Maybe you've wondered, 
what happens with those people in the world who've never believed the gospel? Right? We, we believe that salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. Right? A person has to believe that Jesus died for them and rose again and trust in Him as their Savior in order to be saved. But believing that sometimes begs the question, well, what about those people, maybe on some remote island somewhere, whatever scenario you want to make up, who've never heard about Jesus? What happens to them? I can't guarantee to you that I know the answer, but this passage about Cornelius is a helpful answer to that question. Because what we see here is how God responds to those that have no natural connection to an understanding of the gospel. Now, we're told in Romans chapter 1 and in Psalm 19 that just in creation around us, there's enough for us to see and recognize that God exists He's powerful, and He deserves our worship. And so, people in general are without excuse. We can see God's existence, but it's still not enough to be saved. Even Cornelius needed more information. What did God do? As Cornelius responded positively to the revelation he had, the, the light, the information he had about God, God sent more information. And I think this is how God works. My opinion But as those around the globe that see and recognize that God exists and He is to be worshipped, and that can be seen just in creation around us, that God is faithful to send more information. And that's where you and I come into play. As His servants, as those who have heard, as those who know the saving power of Jesus Christ, to be a people then that are willing to go and to take that message and to share the gospel with those who need to hear, just as God sends Peter to do here. As we think about this, we need to be careful that we're not viewing others as unworthy of salvation. That we don't begin to look down and think some are too far away or too sinful or too evil or too wicked or altogether unworthy. Well, that last one is actually just the point, isn't it? We're all, all together, unworthy. And so there's no looking down on anyone, but just looking up with gratitude and readiness to share the gospel with anyone the Lord would draw to salvation. As we continue on in the text, we move now to Peter, and we get a glimpse into what's going on in Peter's life. And God has some work to do in Peter. And it's this, God prepares him as an insider to see the world through the gospel lens. Rather than seeing things through Judaism, through the Mosaic Law, and through the Old Covenant, God's helping Peter to see things now through the gospel. I want you to notice the shift that takes place in Peter's life. It's the next day, verse 9. These three men, the two servants and the soldier, are on their journey, and they're nearing Joppa, and about the same time, we get these concurrent stories here, and it's a reminder to us of God's sovereign timing, right? It just so happens, as they approach the city, that Peter goes up to pray. Now it's the sixth hour, that's about noon, and as we'll find out, it's about lunchtime. 
Peter goes up, and while he's praying, he gets hungry. We don't know exactly how this unfolds. If he pauses his prayer and goes down and says, hey, let's, let's uh, work up some lunch here. I'm, I'm starving, you know, whether he goes back to his prayer or not. But uh, I can sure relate to this. Many times uh, in prayer, I find something to distract myself with. You know, the stomach grumbles or whatever. And it's like, hmm, maybe I should go get some food uh, before I continue. Well, this is sort of what happens with Peter. He pauses his prayer. Verse 10 is interesting. He became very hungry, and while they made ready, he fell into a trance. It may be that some of you are very hungry and approaching a trance-like state. I don't know. Different trance than what Peter experienced here. Here, he's ready to have a vision. And in his vision, he sees heaven opened. That actually, that phrase, heaven opened, opens the story here, opens the vision, and it closes it again in verse 16. It's significant because this is a message from God. You've heard the story before. There's a sheet that comes down. and we, Again, we don't know exactly what this was like, some sort of canvas maybe, uh, and it comes down from heaven. It's held up at the four corners, and on this sheet are all kinds of animals. The description's there for us in verse 12. Four-footed animals of the earth, that's referring to all sorts of, uh, you know, four-footed animals. Most animals are four-footed. Then we get some more specific descriptions. Wild beasts, probably referring to undomesticated animals or even predators of some kind. Creeping things could be a term referring to reptiles or things that crawled on the ground. And then finally, birds of the air. That's quite a variety gathered on this sheet. A voice comes to Peter and says to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And I think we are meant to think about lunch here. Peter is hungry and he's wanting lunch. And I think this is exactly what Peter's meant to be thinking about here. Okay, you want some food? Rise, kill and eat. Here's your food. But here's what's interesting. The mix of animals on this sheet was probably some mixture of clean and unclean animals. Because Peter responds, not so, Lord, for I've never eaten anything common or unclean. Interesting, this is the third time in bold Peter's life that he disagrees with the Lord. Once at the foot washing, once as Christ talked about going to the cross, and Peter said, no, no, never, may it never be. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And now here, not so, Lord. Here, though, it's a bit different. He resists this almost as if it's an accusation. And Peter's ready to pipe up and defend himself. I have never eaten anything common or unclean. Now, that's pretty impressive if that's really true. We don't know exactly how old Peter is at this point or how much of his life that he's lived. But if you pause to reflect on that statement for a moment, I mean, think back how many meals. How many times Peter has eaten and never, never he ate anything unclean. Now, in the culture of Judaism, I suppose this is possible. They were very rigid about not even associating with people who ate unclean food. And so in that sense, I suppose it's possible. I think we could at least say it's a bit unwise of Peter to make such a strong claim before the Lord God I have never eaten anything unclean. That's quite the claim. God doesn't focus on Peter's claim. He moves on to the important message of the vision. 
He says in verse 15, what God has cleansed, you must not call common. Here is the correction for Peter. Peter is making his boast before the Lord, the fact that he hasn't broken the clean food law. Think about that for a second. Peter's claim before God is his own acts of righteousness. So God calls Peter to remember back. Now, wait a second, Peter. Remember the teaching of Jesus. Don't call common or unclean what God has cleansed. When did God do that? It's a good question. If we go back to Mark chapter 7, we find a passage where the Lord Jesus is teaching. And it's a teaching that surprises both the Pharisees and Jesus' followers. And it's a context of eating. There, the Pharisees are concerned that the disciples haven't washed their hands in just the right ritual way before they eat. Now, there it's not unclean foods, but it does have to do with eating. And after that, resist, why do your disciples not follow the ritual purification, yada, yada, yada? Jesus begins to teach that sin comes from the heart. It's not something outside of us that defiles us, but what we do in the heart. And you remember, this was much of Jesus' teaching because in Judaism, they had become proud about their outward conformity, but had completely missed that their hearts were far from God. So Jesus is helping them see, no, it's an issue of the heart. And that's the exact teaching that Peter's missing here. As his boast before God, look, 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 I followed all the eating laws. But has Peter's heart always been right? We could wonder whether it's even right right here when he says, not so, Lord. You see, God is reminding Peter that the gospel has changed everything. It's not about the eating laws any longer. It's about what Christ has done. Our boast is no longer in our righteousness. Well, look at how many things I've done for the Lord, and I've kept this law and this law, and I've done this many things. That's not our, that's not our claim anymore. The law is intended to help us see that we messed up. The law reveals how we have sinned against the holy God and are actually without hope apart from Christ. The gospel reminds us that Christ is our righteousness. Not only was He the perfect sacrifice by fulfilling the law perfectly, but by dying and rising from the grave, He is our substitute our mediator, our advocate, our savior, our high priest. And so in Christ, we find all that we need to be right with God. So never do we wave our flag before the Lord and say, ha, oh, look at what I've done for you. No. This is why Paul so often says, my only boast is Christ, what he has done for us. See, the gospel changes everything. It also reminds us what the law proves so clearly that none of us is worthy, and yet we are all invited. So God is preparing Peter to see past his self-righteousness and to be ready to invite even a Gentile to salvation in Jesus Christ, that keeping the 
food laws of the Old Testament are not a priority for Peter anymore, but now sharing the gospel is his priority. Peter, I don't think, quite has it figured out yet. This is done three times <laughs> to really confirm it to Peter, and you can even think back at the way Peter kind of operated in threes. Took him some time to pick up on things sometimes. It does for all of us. God gives it to him three times to confirm that this is true, this is right, this is what you need to do. And so then we come to verses 17 and following, and we begin to see how God is going to change things. As we prepare for those final verses and we begin to see whether Peter learned his lesson or not, I want to just make a few brief applications about the way you and I need to see the world through a gospel lens. It's easy to look at Peter and sort of be critical of his pride and Peter, thinking that his keeping the food laws makes him any better and that that's his claim before God. How could he do that? But friends, this kind of self-righteous pride can very easily creep into our own thinking. And we begin to look at the world around us as if we're a little better off than them because of the good things we do and not simply because of Christ. So friends, this is a reminder to us that we need to abandon our self-righteousness. God did not save us because we were worthy. God did not save us because of all the good we had done or, or, or would do, that as if He needed our incredibly righteous acts. No, God saved us because He's rich in mercy. We were dead, and He made us alive because He is good. Prejudice, in fact, grows out of the belief that you can earn some favor from God. If we think we've earned something from God, right, I did these good deeds and so God has therefore blessed me, we become a little proud. And then we look down on others who've not done those same good deeds. We think, well, if you had done a little more, you'd be blessed like I am. Oh, God forbid that we would fall into that backwards kind of thinking. The gospel lens reminds us that we are all together and forever unworthy of the kindness of God. Now, we are compelled to live holy lives and to be obedient to Him and to do what's right and to do good to others and to take the gospel message, but never in a sense of self-righteousness, only in a sense of gratitude for God's love for us, that I, an unworthy sinner, was counted worthy of the gospel. So we begin to see the world through the gospel lens with humility, prepared to invite anyone and everyone to trust in Jesus because we're all unworthy and He is completely merciful and gracious in His invitation to trust in Christ. As we come to the final section, we're going to see number three today, that God arranges these opportunities to welcome one another in the gospel. And this is where it's continuing to unfold. We'll kind of see the conclusion of this point next week as we see the meeting complete as Peter interacts with Cornelius. 
But here we just get a glimpse of Peter's understanding beginning to improve. In verse 17, we notice that Peter is still kind of wondering what all this means. He had seen and what it meant. And behold, again, we see the sovereign hand of God here. While Peter's on the roof kind of wondering what all this means, they arrive at the door downstairs. Huh, crazy timing, huh? They make inquiry. They stand at the gates. They call whether Simon, whose surname is Peter, is lodging there. Verse 19. While Peter thought about the vision, and just in case Peter hadn't gotten yet, God's Spirit gives more instruction to Peter. Behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, go down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. This is completely the work of God. And as Peter still trying to make sense of the vision, he gets word from God. There are three men downstairs looking for him. We don't know whether he knows that they're Gentiles and even a Roman soldier. It had to be kind of a scary moment when Peter discovered that. But he's got the word of God there from the Holy Spirit saying, hey, I've arranged all of this. I sent them to you. Go down. It's safe. It's okay. Go with them. Doubting nothing. God arranges this entire meeting. So Peter goes down, verse 21. Those who've been sent to him from Cornelius and says, yes, I'm the one whom you seek. For what reason have you come? He begins to converse with them and it continues to unfold. And then in verse 22, they begin to explain, well, Cornelius, the centurion, and I had to imagine, you know, Peter's kind of, you know, gulping at this point. Okay, a, a Roman soldier with a lot of power here. What, what, what's coming And they explain to him that he fears God and has a good reputation among the nation of the Jews. I think these Gentile servants and the soldier understood the kind of division that was there between Jews and Gentiles and are probably just trying to help Peter be less alarmed. Don't worry, Cornelius has a good reputation among the Jews. Ah, okay. Cornelius was divinely instructed. There we see God's hand in all of this again to summon you to his house, and here's the key at the end of verse 23, to hear words from you. I don't know, but in my imagination, that's the phrase that helps it all click for Peter. God has sent us, God is sending you, so that Cornelius can hear words from you. Ah, Peter has to, I I, I would think, has to remember at that point, like, what his entire life is about at this point. That he's been commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ, not to prove his self-righteousness, but to be a witness to salvation in Jesus Christ. Remember the words of Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses. And you'll go to Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. I mean, it's just, it just has to click here at Peter's mind. Ah, words. I know exactly which words the Lord wants Cornelius to hear. You can be saved by faith in Jesus Christ. And we see the change in verse 23. 
Because Peter does something that I think the old Peter would not have done. He invites them in and lodges with them. And the next day goes on his journey. We'll continue the story next week. But that opening phrase to verse 23 doesn't stand out to us as present-day readers. But that's something that according to Jewish practice and rituals was not done. They were Gentiles. They were unclean. They didn't keep the Jewish rituals. They didn't eat clean foods. You weren't to be allowed in the house, and certainly you were not supposed to go to their house. But here we see a change in Peter's life. Now, granted, it's Simon the Tanner's home, but Peter invites them in and makes them their guests. He hosts them. He shows them hospitality before they head on their journey, and this is incredibly surprising to any Jewish readers of the text here. He does He does what? He invites them in? He hosts them? Why? Because God has indeed helped Peter to begin to see through that gospel lens that all people are invited to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. That it's good and right for us to extend that kind of welcome to anyone and everyone who would hear the message of salvation. As you know, I played soccer for a number of years, and uh, one of my soccer games in college, uh, something interesting happened after the game. Uh, It was a fairly normal game. The only thing unique about that game is that we had just completely destroyed the opponent. That wasn't typical. It was the kind of game where the coaches and even the players begin to wonder, like, okay, who else can we sub in so we stop scoring uh, you know, the, the score was just racking up. How do we avoid scoring without insulting the other team? You know, these kinds of question marks on our minds. Uh, who hasn't scored yet? We'll put them in. You know, those kinds of things. So we just, you know, we're racking the score up. And it, when you start to feel bad for your opponent in a game like that, um, it's not a good thing. You know, it's just not pleasant. So anyways, one of those kinds of games. And so the game came to an end, and, you know, we thought the opposing team was just you know, going to be incredibly upset with us or, you know, whatever. We didn't know what was going to happen. Well, then a strange invitation came. They said, hey, you guys want to come eat dinner with us after the game? Come back to campus. We'll, we'll treat you to a meal in our dining hall. Okay. You know, I'd never experienced anything like that. To eat with the opponents after a competition like that where we had just crushed them, Right. So we went to eat with them. It was the first and last time I've ever done anything like that. <laughs> we went to the meal and we're sitting around the tables, you know, and you just kind of wonder what to talk about. I probably shouldn't bring the game up. Uh, <laughs> you know, just... so you ask questions about other things and I couldn't believe it. They were happy and friendly and kind through the whole meal. There was no animosity and Our team got along just fine with their team and kind of left all just sort of scratching our heads going, that was different. But we appreciated the welcome. Completely unexpected. Of all people, why would you invite those who just crushed you on the soccer field to come have a meal with you? And yet, it indeed was an act of kindness. And our team enjoyed it and enjoyed the connections with them. 
See, it's important that we understand with God's invitation to salvation, we are the unexpected guest. We don't deserve to be there. We're invited by His grace and His kindness. And what that means then is that we need to be ready to welcome others that we wouldn't expect to be at the table because we didn't deserve to be there either. And God will be working behind the scenes to arrange these kinds of opportunities. It's God's work in the world today. This is His mission. And He's still at work that the message of the gospel would go to all people. You won't have visions or or trances that give you these kinds of specific instructions. But you better believe that God will open doors for you to share the gospel with people that in your human perception you might think they don't deserve to be at the table. Shut that down and see people through the lens of the gospel God is in the business of saving souls through the message of His Son, our Savior. That you and I weren't worthy to be at the table. And that's exactly who the message is for. This comes down to things even as simple as a greeting at church. I'm often encouraged to hear people say that our church is a welcoming church. I'm so thankful for that. I just want to encourage you in that, not, not because there's you know, some reason to pat yourselves on the back, yeah, we, well, we're a welcoming church. No, 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 because it's the gospel, is it not? There's people walking the door, we're all looking to our Father saying, I don't deserve to be here, but I'm glad I'm here, and I'm glad you're here. Welcome. Let's worship our saving, gracious, merciful God together and wave the flag of Jesus Christ, not our own righteousness. And so we welcome one another. Keep it up. This plays into hospitality. Neighbors and co-workers and extended family, whoever. Who, who would the Lord use you to show a gospel welcome to? that You might have the opportunity to share the message of salvation in Christ Watch out for that self-righteous prejudice that would fill you with disdain, dislike, even anger as you look at others. Remember that the same kind of sin that you might be frustrated with in their life dwells in your heart as well. And your only claim is the love of God in Christ and the righteousness of God by faith. This is the gospel. And so, friends, let's keep our eyes open for these opportunities to be welcoming and to share the message of salvation with anyone and everyone who would hear it because this is God's invitation. This is how He has loved the world, that all who trust in Christ be saved from their sin and right with God and have a seat at His table forevermore. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for your kindness to us. Oh, humble us today by your grace. We are altogether unworthy of your kindness and your mercy. And in that humility, Father, may we be compelled to not only live for you, but then to take this message to those who need to hear it as well. May we, as people redeemed by the blood of Christ, be passionate 
about inviting anyone and everyone to trust in Jesus. And even now as we close, we pray for those here who may not know Jesus as their Savior. Having heard God's invitation, your invitation even today, may they trust in Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.